history, session 42, Rabbi Blyweiss. We're at the end of the Persian period. Uh, Twelve years pass. Nehemiah, remember, built the walls. The Anshe Knesset made major, major, significant, lasting changes to the whole nature of Jewish life, religious practice. And uh, 12 years have passed after Nehemiah has been in Eretz Israel, making a significant impact. And the king calls him back to Bavel. Uh, there's a lot of intrigue. I'm skipping over it because it, it's part of the story, but I don't know what kind of a long-term impact it has. I will say that the enemies of the Jews, Sun Balat and Tovia and the Shomronim and others, renew their aggression against the, the, the struggling Jewish community. Again, despite all of the reinforcements of the Anshei Knesset Gedola, the Jews begin to slacken in their observance. There's one episode in which the Kohen Gadol, who's named at this time as Elyashiv, he's related to Tovia, the Amoni, who's not a good guy. He gives Tovia a special room in the base of Mikdash. Uh, something corrupt is going on, um, and, and, and that's, that becomes a problem. There's another episode in which the king gives Nehemiah permission to come back from Bavel again, and when he comes back, the first thing he does is get out of here. He tells Tovia, you don't belong in Hashem's house. Uh, so so he, he fixes the situation as he's usually doing. That's Nehemiah's job in this world. He's constantly fixing what the other people make crooked. Uh, he also reminds people that there's an Easter, there's, an, there's a, a prohibition that's carrying into Amun and Moab, into those nations. Still, we know an intermarriage persists as a problem. Men were married to uh, the Ammonite and Moabite women, um, which is not included in the Easter. Meaning, you're not allowed to intermarry, it's true. But above and beyond intermarrying is a prohibition against marrying uh, Moab and Ammon, but um, the, the prohibition is against, uh, is, is, is for is women marrying the men, uh, right? So the men marrying the woman is, is just a prohibition of intermarriage. See him today, I think. Oh, very nice, Mazel Tov. Thanks, thanks. Um, yeah, so, Nehemiah puts the men, the intermarried men, into harem again, trying to as best he can to clean up uh, the, the messes that the Jewish people are making. He finally, in the last episode, we, we read out with Nehemiah and Sadiq, he goes back to Bavel, and it's in Bavel that he dies. He passes away in Bavel. Um, soon after he died, his death is soon after the last of the Nevim. We already saw the Nevim die off. Um, Haggai, Zechariah, and finally Malachi die. Um, if Malachi again is Ezra, it's appropriate because Ezra soon thereafter uh, dies as well. Uh, Meshulam, the latest Nasi, the son of Zerubbabel, dies. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, their death day is the 9th of Tevis. And the 9th of Tevis, we, we're already seeing that there's several dates that line up with the, uh, there's a Sarah of Tevis, which is really the fast day that we have today. Once upon a time, there were three days in a row, the 8th, 9th, and 10th of the month of Tevis, next month, um, for us at least, the next month, um, that were all tragic days. And the 9th was tragedy because of Nehemiah and Ezra. Today, all of these tragedies are combined in the one fast day. Meaning we commemorate the loss of Ezra Nehemiah also on Asara B'Tavis, uh, even though it happened the day before. Um, the last Nasi, Meshulam's son is Hananiah. He's the last Nasi who serves as a figurehead. Uh, he's the, he, again, he's a figurehead. He's like I said, the Queen of England, the President of Israel. 
Um, he's the last one to even come close to some kind of position of authority. Um, from this point on, after Hananiah, Beis David remains in Bavel, and none of them make Aliyah all the way until, anybody know which famous descendant of the house of David from his mother's side? No, so it's not really quite legitimate because we only go for the father's side for really to be part of the monarchy. But who, which descendant of Basil from the mother's side comes up from Bavel? No? So I'm not telling you. Uh, you'll say to me, it's a really big name. You definitely know who it is. I mean, you only heard the name. Uh, it has lasting significance in, in the Jewish people. And the hint is the term Nasi. This term is like the putative. It's, it's not quite the king. But it's certainly a regal position. Uh, he is the ultimate Nasi. This descended from the house of David, but that's going to be many, many generations, a few centuries uh, down the line. We're still in the early Second Temple period. Now, speaking of that, I've mentioned this before. We know that there's a discrepancy between the Jewish calendar and the non-Jewish calendar. As we've said, the Jewish view counts the Second Temple period as 420 years. So we, if we adjusted it, that would be around from the time 350 BCE to 70 CE. Count it, right? Um, if you look up the non-Jewish calendar, they, they expand it and it's another 166 years, 586 before the Common Era, all the way down to 70. Um, that's, and what they do in changing the calendar is they simply um, they added a whole uh, extension to the Persian period. We hold the Persian period to be relatively short, as we said, um, about 60 years, and uh, they, maybe a little less, and they, and they hold it to be considerably longer. Um, and so this is the end of the Persian period. Um, we're going to, right around the corner is the Greek period. Uh, this is a significant uh, time. I hope our friends will arrive uh, in the next couple of minutes because you'll see it's a lot, a lot of major points to be made. Certainly, certainly as we ourselves in the early month of uh, Kis, we're early into the month of Kislev, we're preparing for Hanukkah. After the Men of the Great Assembly, um, we have the uh, judicial body of authority remains the Sanhedrin Gedola. 71 judges sit there. The Maharil explains the term Sanhedrin, which is a Greek term, but he, he darshans it in Hebrew. It, he says can stand for Sone Hadrasponim Badin, those who hate favoritism in judgment. Sanhedrin, Sone Hadrasponim Badin. Sanhedrin sits, anybody know, anybody remember from our tour last week? No, the Sanhedrin Gedola, the major one sits in what's called the Lishka Sagosis, the, ch the chamber of hewn stone in that corner in the Azara. Do you remember the, do you remember the tour? You're on the tour? In the corner of the Azara, outside, across from the area of the Mizbeach and the rings of the Kohanim, the 24 rings of the Kohanim are, are, are there. It sits... It's, got, it's presided over by a figurehead, the Nasi. The term is called Nasi. The second in order, sometimes uh, they're combined, is the Av Beistin, uh, the father of the Beistin on his right. The rest of them sit in a very deliberate pecking order from significant to less significant in Torah scholarship. Everybody knew his place, and they were constantly, the Martin Sanhedrin describes this, constantly shifting. So that let's say there was a top person that died in the Sanhedrin, the replacement wasn't just brought in from outside and assumed that chair. Rather, everybody scooted over one chair and got a promotion, and then the newbie, the new fellow on the block, got took took the last row in the last um, 
section. So they're all sitting in a semicircle. The Gemara explains there, semicircle. They all have to be able to uh, be able to witness the uh, excuse me, uh, view the witnesses equally. A witness can't stand in such a way where he'd be facing some of the judges, but his back would be to another, uh, to any of the judges. So that's why it's a semicircle. Um, there are, this is not the this is the primary, as we call it, let's say the Supreme Court, but there are two more Sanhedrins called Sanhedrin Kitana. Uh, they have 23 judges, and they, one of them sits in the opening of the Azara, in the opening of the Azara right outside there, and another one sits at the opening of the Temple Mount itself. And in addition to all these Sanhedrins, there's a Sanhedrin Kitana that's um, in every city and village that has at least 120 men um, and every Sanhedrin Kitana has to sit by the city gates and they, they adjudicate certain, even Dina Nefashos, certain um, capital offenses and then the Gemara delineates the high level capital offenses only, only go to the Sanhedrin Gedola. There is also, in addition to this, we have a base Dean, Bate Dean how many judges are sitting on those? Three. Those are the simple, uh, those are for simple financial cases, Dina Mamonos. There are people who, to, to uh, administer justice, there are people called the Shotrim, who have sticks and whips, and they bring the offenders to the base team. They set the market rates. They've got a lot of functional uh, role to play in Kalal Yisrael. The um, only judges who draw a salary are the judges who sit on the top court, the Senegal Gidola. Um, they take what's called schar batala, meaning it's the, it's what permits people like me and your other teachers in yeshiva, your rebbe's in yeshiva, to take a salary. We're doing mitzvahs, we're teaching Torah. I can't make money off of a salary, so what do we? I'm not making money for teaching the Torah. I could be out in the field picking celery and making my fortune. Uh, so when you, when I draw my fortune of a paycheck as it is, uh, I'm getting scarbatala for the fact that I can't be picking celery in the field. That's what I'm getting paid for. It's for my time, um, and that's true. Anybody doing mitzvahs, I, I quote Reb Schechter when I mention this insight because he has a great line. He says, "Rebbe's are not the only people doing mitzvahs. Doctors, for example, saving lives are doing mitzvahs. Certainly, in which case the nafkamina would be Rebbe's should probably have the pay scale with." The medical profession, a suggestion that's been suggested and not yet accepted, usually on the yeshiva payroll. The, uh, but I'm not against it, the idea. Anyway, they get from the, what's called the Truma Salishka, a part of the temple budget. Um, the other ones support themselves independently. They don't, they don't, they don't draw a salary. Um, that's the situation as we find ourselves. And I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm glad a few of you came. Some parts of history are more, are, I'm going to give more emphasis. I'm, let's say, a little bit more excited than others because they give insight. And some of these insights here, most of them are not original. That's why I get excited about them. Um, I think that you really start understanding the way the world was and is in many ways. Certainly understanding the Greek world is imperative. It's vital if we want to make sense of what, what happens in this time. But you know, we've never really vanquished the Greeks and their values are still very with us, which makes Hanukkah as relevant a celebration uh, as ever today as it was back in the day. So a little bit about the Greek civilization. Where do they come from? We know that... What, how am I? Well, I'm taking a step back. I'm not talking about the narrative history so much. I'm going to give a little background of the Greeks. 
from our perspective, from their perspective, from our perspective, we want to start with somebody. We would start with a, philo- a figure that's mentioned in early on in the Torah by the name of Yavan. Yavan being the name Greek, uh, Greece in uh, in Hebrew. Yavan ben Yefes, who actually is the son of Yefes, one of Noah's three sons. He's born after the Mabul, and um, his descendants will gravitate towards the area that we think of geographically as Greece today. Uh, they spread out over these island <coughs> states, picture some of the islands also in the Mediterranean, that are topographically significant, and I think they, they play a big role in the story. They're hilly islands, which means that um, as a spread out population, not concentrated in individual cities, unlike much of the civilized world, what happens is the individual gets an unusual prominence because you're spread out, so then people start thinking for themselves and living for themselves. And one thing you can definitely assert about the Greek society and culture is it's one very focused on the individual, on the rights, on the role of the individual within the world. Um, He was not a negligible statistic. Let's say a city dweller sometimes feels a sense of irrelevance. I'm just a cog in the system. Think about modern cities. Think about... um, the, the, the uh, people, people feeling like a cog in a, in, in a system, or even farmer-hunter societies in which it's a general, you're, you're very much part of a claw of a, of a general system, but the individual matters less. No, in a, in, in a spread out hilly countryside of Greece, suddenly the, uh, the individual citizen mattered more. That meant his intellectual experience mattered more, as did his aesthetic experience of the world. And one can understand that the Greek culture that puts a primacy on thinking, <laughs> philosophy, on art, on pleasure, on the body, on the spirits, how this might emerge given this, just given the basic topography and, and culture of the times, one facet, one, one outgrowth of the Greek society, something that's still uh, quite dominant in the world today, is the concept of democracy. And it makes sense, given everything we're saying, democracy follows logically. If you have a society that's based all around the individual, well then, the whole concept of voting, which is, in terms of human history, the the, the idea of voting itself, which is in pagan societies irrelevant and laughable, but suddenly in the Greek society, yeah, you get a vote, you count, you as an individual. Um, This is not for now, democracy is not, inherently a Jewish Torah idea. It doesn't mean it has to contradict it, but today to hear, especially a bunch of the the, 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 um, secular Western mindset, uh, pluralistic mindset, democracy is seen as a supreme value. Uh, Well, you're just not democratic, they might say to you, putting you down. You know, as if that's some kind of an insult. And from a Torah perspective, listen, there's a role that everybody can play, and on some level, every Jew has to learn Torah, every Jew counts, certainly. We do, we do emphasize the individual. But you know what? Not everybody gets a vote. And if you're an Amaritz, or even just a relative simpleton, relative to the higher level scholars in Torah, your voice doesn't matter as much as, uh, let's say, the voice of the Guggle. They know more, they paid their dues, and we give them, we give them greater primacy. <coughs> Democracy goes out, grows out of a culture that everybody's the same. 
Now, I'm not going to go into all of ancient Greek history. I'm, I, I'm going to mention very briefly that there are these two. There's, there's, there's Sparta, there's Athens. They were, on, they were, they were battling uh, constantly. In the end, Sparta will trounce. Initially, Athens is dominant, but Sparta is going to, is going to be uh, victorious over them. Uh, we also know the Navi Yirmiyahu and Samasukim indicates that Jews settled on, on, these, on these islands, both in Sparta and in Athens. Um, the big war is the Peloponnesian War. That's when Sparta comes out on top. It's followed by a long period of instability, and eventually both nation states overcome their differences and form an empire. And that's when Yavan emerges, now the second in the statue. If you remember the statue, the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and, and Daniel that reflect the Dalit Malthios, the four monarchies. This is the second of the, oh, excuse me, the third of the monarchies, not the second. We've already seen two. We've seen Bavel and we've seen Pras and Madai. Both fairly brief blips on the scene. Greece is going to be around considerably longer. Rome, of course, will be longer, by, by far the longest. And now it comes, it comes into its own. Um, and Greek mythology will develop as with, as with a certain amount of paganism. At, at core, it's a pagan mythology. The significant insight, without going into an, uh, too much of an analysis, probably the most important point to consider is in Greek mythology, gods are like men and women. They're like mortals. They behave the same way. And that is certainly in major contrast to the Tyra. In Tyra, if you want to think about it in simple terms, men try to behave like Hashem. He sets the standard. He sets the model, and we strive for that as best we can. But, like, for example, we say, uh, the Gemara tells us, Hu rachum, Hashem is compassionate. Afatatia rachum. So you too should be compassionate. That's our, that's our model. We're talking about the Greek society, Daniel. Um, in, the Greek, in the Greek way of doing things, it's all inverted. The Greeks basically projected onto their gods a human Yetzahara. Now listen to this. Get this insight, because it, it explains so much. Um, because if the gods do these horrific things, well, I mean, you can't expect much more from human beings. It's the ultimate rationalization. Let me finish this insight, and then, and then, and then, you're, then you're on. Don't forget your thought. So consider some of the famous gods, small g, small case g. Zeus is a, is, is a god known for his, count, among other things, his countless extramarital affairs. He's also, no, he and his violent son, Ares, we're known for the slaughter of millions of people. We meet the figure like Athena, who uh, turns her rival Arachnia into a spider. We know Venus, who's the epitome of, of carnal desire. Dionysius was a mad drunkard. Hermes is a pathological liar. He's a thief. And they all go about their business, their wickedness, with impunity. They're gods, so who can hold them accountable? And if you think about it, it's pretty fun and convenient to live in such a constellation where all the gods are misbehaving, because if they're doing it, we're certainly absolved of any responsibility. And the Greek universe was, and to a large degree today, and I'm tempted to go off on a whole tangent, I'll, I'll say one little thing about this, devoid of guilt. Think about the world we're living in today. In the pluralist, democratic, Western society at large, most of us grew up in, um, it's very much a construct of Greek making in which, okay, so we don't have a mythology of gods, 
uh, the pluralist secular mindset to some degree has written God, capital, capital case G, out of the picture. Who do we have? Well, let's say we have our role models. We have societies, uh, leaders, and, 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 uh, and, and examples. But you know what society does? And right now I'm playing on some of the writings. These are not Jewish writers, but uh, Daniel Patrick, Patrick Moynihan, Charles Krauthammer writes on these, on these issues. They, um, these are what we do, what we have a tendency to do, and you'll, you'll recognize this immediately. We take anybody who's, just, who's is put forth to it, is posited as some kind of a leader, authority figure, role model type person, and the immediate tendency, look at the Western media, is to deconstruct them, is to find that, well, it's true, but you know that person really was secretly a child molester, or they evaded their taxes, or they are guilty of all kinds of petty crimes, and so on, so that you can't really respect them. I pity the politicians, especially the ones that put their necks out and decide to become president, because through so many Saturday Night Live imitations and whatever other reductions that happen, they're subjected to a personal um, uh, humiliation because that's what society does. It likes to bring down to size the leaders because if the leaders are actually really mediocre, we can't be expected to do much better. The other, the other extreme tends to also be true. Um, the people, the dregs of society, the criminals, the, uh, the, down, the downtrodden, um, they're not really evil either. <laughs> it's not their fault, if you think about the way that the world works. They're only a product of their socioeconomic disadvantaged position, so they can't be blamed. And what we've done, and this is really a holdover from the Greek civilization, is that we've, we've equaled the playing field. Everybody is in the same moral morass together. The good guys really aren't that great. The bad guys really aren't that bad. We're all in, this, in, in, in the field of mediocrity together. Let's go and sin and do it with impunity. Let's do it so we don't have to feel bad about ourselves. Because come on, you can't expect differently from people. If you consider modern marriage as it is, as a state of affairs, I think this mindset helps people cheat much more easily. Everybody's doing it. I don't have to be this big tzaddik. I can have a fling too on the side. What's the big deal once you get into this thing? Little business cheating, little theft, little, uh, little money laundering here and there. What's the big deal? Again, there are no role models in the world. The Torah, as, 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 as to emphasize, comes in stark contrast. No, actually we have major tzaddikim <coughs> And there's nothing to say bad. I mean, you know, even if we can criticize it, the criticism is, 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 is kid stuff. It's minor kind of, kind of material. And we hold ourselves to a higher value. Hey, but Robert, why would you say what you said about the lower class of society? Yeah, right. Not all. Why, why would you say that's inaccurate? I don't think it's inaccurate. Sometimes it's true. I would say it doesn't absolve them. Let's say they did a heinous, a heinous crime. It doesn't absolve them of their guilt. Now, the fact that they're there and that they're, there's a cycle of, of illiteracy and poor education and that leads to a life of crime and so on, it's true, it's a tragic pattern. And it'd be great if they could break out of it. But you know, in Judaism, we, in Torah, we don't really absolve people from sin. I mean, it was, it was a conflict, it was, it was an area that I, in my therapy practice and in, in working in, in, in the field of therapy, I've, I've, I've come upon the secular therapists often run afoul, I think, of this, of this mindset of like, you know, it's not really their fault for sinning and can't really help people change. Come on, how much do we really change in the world? Really the goal of much of therapy is just to help a person come to terms with who they really are. So if they're a kleptomaniac, we can forgive them and let's just help them feel good about their kleptomania. 
That's the, that's the mindset. Where as a from therapist, if my if my clients are kleptomaniac, I, I'm trying to be empathic, I'm trying to help them and grow, I'm not gonna sit in judgment, that's not my role. But I'm not gonna absolve them of the sins either. I'm not gonna just uh, sweep it sweep it blindly under the rug. Uh, there's, Issa, there's there's an Issa there, especially if he's a from Jew. I got, I've, got, I've got to be able to point that out in some productive way. I have had people in my in come to me come to me who are not so from. Sometimes I have what to offer them. Generally, logically, people want to go to like-minded people. But uh, but no, I have had some very interesting. And sometimes I, uh, it's Dafka my being religious that in their particular cases uh, was helpful. Um, the wise men of Athens, what in Hebrew is called the Chochme Atuna. We have, a, we have a tradition that they initially, where do they get their ideas from? What, what is the source of Greek philosophy? So we have it, the Ramah, the great Rav Moshe Isilis bring this, brings this down in one of his books, Torah Sa'ola. He says that the origins of, the early origins of Greek philosophy were, and we mentioned this here before, I mean, remember? The writings of Shlomo HaMelech. Specifically, but not just Mish, uh, not Mishle, excuse me, uh, Kohelis. Um, I'm quoting the Ramah. He says, all the wisdom of the philosophers and the researcher, researchers come from Israel. The wisdom of Aristotle was stolen from Shlomo when Alexander the Macedonian, that's Alexander the Great, conquered Jerusalem. He appointed his teacher Aristotle to govern over Shlomo's book collection. The Ramah brings down, he has a tradition of, to this effect. He continues, every good thing he found in them, he, Aristotle copied. He added some of his own mistaken ideas and twisted them, uh, such as, for example, antiqu antiquity of the world and the denial of Hashkacha Pratis and Providence. Um, that's an interesting perspective. Can I prove that? I wouldn't offer this as a proof. But if the Ramah says it, that's pretty authoritative for a traditional Jew. And it makes sense to me, too, because you can see in some of the writings, you can see, for example, in Kohelis, um, you could see how they would take ideas when he says, Ein Chadash, when there's nothing new under the sun, how that might breed the concept of Greek Stoicism. Uh, a Stoic is somebody who doesn't place much faith in the uh, ability for man, man to change. Dor holech, the door ba, the one generation comes, another one goes. Also another Stoic idea, the idea of um, determinism, randomness. Many basic ideas of Greek philosophy could be based on misunderstanding the Psukim in Kohelis. Um, one way of understanding the name Alexander from a Jewish perspective is that Alexander took what was initially Yashar. What's Yashar? Straight. Straight. It's, we are, in fact, named for that. We're, after Yaakov Avinu, Yisra Kel. We're Yashar Kel. We're straight. We're honest. We go straight to Kaddish Baruch Hu. Alternately, we're Yishurun. Yashar Nun, we're straight Nun back wasn't to 50. He religious? Hmm? Wasn't he religious? No, wasn't he religious? Yeah, it's true. But Alexander, is of what he represents, the whole Greek mindset, Alexander takes what's Yashar, and some of you with Hebrew will appreciate this, he takes what's Yashar, what's straight and good and holy, and he makes it Alexon. What's Alexon? Anybody know what that means? Is in. Uh, in Greek and then in Hebrew, Alexander is diagonal. He takes what's straight, and Alexander takes what's alexon and makes it crooked. 
And in contrast, you come back to Yisrael, the Jewish people, we take what's alexon, we try to at least, and try to make it yashar, and make it straight. Hey, Rabbi, where, where, what Judaic precedent did like the Socratic method have? Like, I don't think that's a very Jewish, like... That's fair, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Socrates now, briefly. Um, and it's a fair question. Certainly, a lot of the ideas are not Jewish. The, uh, and that they would have come from elsewhere is, is highly plausible. Remember, the Ramaz claim is that it starts with Judaism, and then they had their own ideas. But what you can say is Socrates, who sometimes is considered the first of the deepest and the, and, and the, the highest uh, of the Greek philosophers, he had a student named Plato, uh, and Plato's student was Aristotle. They, among the Greek philosophers, all affirmed Hashem. They were, in varying degrees, what's called deist, deity. They, they saw that there was a deity in the universe. They saw that he created the world. They rejected, in major, in major terms, they rejected the notion of paganism, of multiple gods. Okay, so when, when one finds them affirming or talking about or sometimes even participating in pagan idolatrous practices, but that can be explained as more of a cultural affect was that's what you did back in back in Greece? You wanted to be part of the, the upper class society. You had no choice. Kind of like remember the Jews keeping the getchka in their backyard. And for our discussion, so that was what one did. But it wasn't. It didn't reflect their their deep beliefs. Um, there's a Christian source that says that Aristotle actually was Jewish. That he came from the tribe of Binyamin. Interesting, compelling, debatable. Um, with Aristotle, Greek philosophy emerged and became the dominant force in the world. And you should realize Aristotelian logic and philosophy dominated worldview, waxed and waned a little bit, but more or less was a dominant view all the way up to and not quite including the modern era. Meaning through the Middle, Age, Middle Ages, the medieval time in Europe, Aristotelian <coughs> thinking was very strong and so it's going to represent it's going to take up some of our discussion too, especially with, let's say, we get into the, uh, the period of the Rambam. The Rambam is something called Aristotelian in his outlook. That's a distortion. It's not quite accurate, but there's some truth to it. There's some one finds Aristotelian, let's say, uh, what's called Aristotelian logic is hyper-rational, explained in this worldly terms. That will be a dominant modal modality in this in, in, in the world from this time. Huge impact on all of us, whether we realize it or not. Um, deism affirms God. It denies Hashkoch Pratis, meaning there is a God. It's more sometimes referred to as the clockmaker theory of, of, of Kodesh Baruch where he winds it up and lets it tick, uh, but that he's not involved on an individual level. And to take it even further, it could be the Guzari who describes this. Um, <coughs> God being so lofty, so supreme a being, what difference could it possibly make to God what I, what, what I, my troubles and my toils and my petty little life down here in the physical uh, irrelevant world? So Hashem is not involved on a daily basis. That's what we associate with basic uh, uh, deist and Aristotelian thinking. Yes? Created like you know, for example, like for us, the angels, right? Yeah. Things. Yeah. And that became their gods. Okay, you can branch <laughs> off as. Listen, I'm simplifying, grossly simplifying a lot of ideas in Greek culture. 
I am allowing that they start with a, a, a basis of deism and certainly branch off in other areas that then go into sometimes paganism. But at core, there is a belief in a sin. Um, so you would say that our disproof for deism is the validity of the Torah? I wouldn't try to prove it. I don't think it's something no, you can like, argue. I don't um, think you can our, argue our, on our a... core argument against deism. We believe that there's Ashkafa Pratis. We but believe that Akash Baruch is involved in an ongoing basis in our lives and in the world. But we believe that because of the Torah, right? Right. The Torah, like, the Torah runs with that as a premise. Like, like it, so, okay, fine. So for that, like... I'm saying for the Greeks, they would have to reject the validity of the divine origin of the Torah to kind of believe in Jesus. Right, right, which reasonably they did. I mean, they, they didn't have the Torah, they didn't know the Torah, uh, although that's questionable. Again, maybe Arist if Aristotle really was Jewish, which we have, other than that source, there's no way of knowing one way or the other. Maybe he converted later, there's another source. Um, one thing we can say about it, it was um, very lofty ideas, very mind-bending ideas, not a, necessarily a particularly moral system. Uh, it may or may not have been it's amoral, but for example, one finds Aristotle in his book on, called Politics, I'm quoting Aristotle, writing, there must be a law that no imperfect or maimed child shall be brought up. To avoid an excess in population, some children, he wrote, must be exposed, and what he means by that is thrown into the trash or left to die in the woods, to be fair, he's not exactly advoc advocating child murder, just a cold case for population control. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm actually, I read about that. <coughs> he literally wrote that yeah. as, as, as a joke to mock somebody else. Maybe, that's that's apologetics. He was, he, 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 it he may be. Really okay, it could be, it could be, it could be, but one finds elsewhere, there's not a strong, keen uh, sense of morality. Um, another source, he says that later on, and this is a source that people bring, I, I, Rev. Rosen pointed this out to me years ago, uh, that Aristotle later on, it's claimed, renounced his earlier ideas, affirmed the ideas of Torah, and according to the source, actually converted, became a Gerd Sedek. In the source he says, if I could, I'd burn all of my books that caused such harm and, and, and tragedy through the world. Um, it's a source that to a, a, a skeptic's eyes, reads like wishful thinking on the part of the Jewish people that some Jew wrote up as if he's Aristotle, writing a you know, wishful list of what Aristotle would have if he could have uh, written at the end of his life. Um, there's no way of knowing if it's true or not. I don't deny that it's possibly true, I just don't know it. Um, to be fair, that, those, these are dominant Greek philosophers. There are others like Epicurus and others that's where the term, an Epicurus is somebody who denies God because Epicurus or Epicureanism, they reject Hashkacha Pratis, they reject reward in the world to come, they're not focused at all on, on, on a singular deity. And then you get to the whole pagan, you get to the whole pagan dominant culture and they're clearly uh, separate from Hashem. They also Sometimes. There's not one uniform they. The Greeks had lots of different contrary ideas, but there is there is a strong vein of what's called Neoplatonic um, philosophy that sees this world and this worldly pursuits as inherently evil. Um, but then that runs counter to a whole dominant strain in Greek society that was all about eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. So they're not always reconcilable, these, these, uh, these ideas. Another problem, a deficiency, I'm almost done talking, talking about the Greek philosophy, we'll get back to our narrative. One of the problems with philosophy, you have to realize, first of all, the world before modern days was deeply philosophical. 
That meant that people, Jews, non-Jews, sat around, spent a lot of time thinking about why. Why everything. Such thinking can fill your days, your years. You can spend your entire life philosophizing. It doesn't necessarily lead you to much or to anything substantive. Some people go crazy just thinking about why because ultimately we're limited in our ability to answer the question. Um, one of the problems with almost all philosophy is that um, is what's left unanswered. Most major fundamental questions are unanswered. They tell the story, you know, the story of the great philosopher who was on his deathbed and uh, everybody gathered around and they asked him, oh great philosopher, tell us <coughs> what is the secret, what is the meaning of life? And with his barely had energy left, but with his waning energy, the philosopher turns to the people and he says, life, life is a river. And immediately when the philosopher makes his, utters his, his declaration, there's, a, there's an excitement, there's a murmur going around the room. He said, the philosopher said, life is a river, life is a river, life is a river. And out in the corridors, life is a river. And out into the street and to the other end of town, everybody's, everybody's uh, going on, life is a river, the philosopher said. And at the end of the, of the village, there's a little boy who hears this, and he says, life is a river, life is a river. And then he says to the person who told it to him, he said, well, what does he mean, life is a river? And the man says, yes, what does he mean, life is a river? And immediately at the edge of town, there's a tumult, there's a commotion. What is life, what is life is a river? And it goes back into the streets and back into the corridors of the house and back into the room where the philosopher still lays dying and they find the polite way of formulating. They turn to him and they said, oh, great philosopher, what did you mean that life is a river? And the philosopher turns to them and he says, okay, so it's not a river. Uh, no, but it, but you know what? If you tell it in, in, to any philosopher PhD, they love it because it really does capture something with all the uh, mind-bending. Sometimes you get the cleverest, intellectual, most stimulating kinds of uh, you know re uh, philosophies that, that are out there. At the end of the day, life is a river. Sometimes, sometimes one finds absolute moronic ideas, but not always. I think more times than not, they're incredibly brilliant, for too too brilliant for their own for their own good. You, you know, the human brain is also part of the. Akadish Baruch Hu put us put Salomon key. That means our brains and sometimes our over cleverness, because we can be over clever for our own good. You know, can become the source of a, of almost an idol idol worship in a sense. Then, they had a general idea of what was going on, at least. It can like, vary, it's like, complicated, like, some like, of them, yeah. Hundreds, hundreds and on, mm -hmm. and just like, not necessarily. Contemporary philosophers, Descartes, Hume, uh, Kant, this is deep thinkers. We're going we're gonna to see a lot of them have I mean, Baruch Spinoza is credited... Baruch Spinoza is credited as being, I mean, we're going to spend some time because he has a major impact in the world. He's sometimes credited with being, as being the father of the emancipation of, of, uh, of what's called the Enlightenment. Not the Emancipation, the Enlightenment. And, um, and like therefore, as an extension, as an extension, arguably the reform movement, the secularization of the Jews. He himself was, a, was an apostate Jew. He's, he's an important figure for us, and he's certainly a philosopher, and he's not a simpleton. Uh, 
Who's that? No, I'm not talking about Rus- Rusev. was also a philosopher. I'm talking about Baruch Spinoza. No, he was not. No, in the beginning he had a... No, even early on, he went off. And he had... But what he did have, and this has made, made it even more um, problematic for us, he had a religious... In, in his own secular way, he had a religious mystique about him. He was, to his followers, his fans, something of a quasi-tzadik. He, he maintained a very, very much Neoplatonic neo style, very simple lifestyle. He was a, I think he was a glass... He made glasses and, uh, and, and, and very, very uh, modest and humble in his outlook and his temperament. So uh, he, he had all of that. I mean, there are a lot of different philosophers out there. Now, today, philosophy is in... and has been for hundreds of years in, in sharp decline. The, especially we could say the Industrial Revolution makes humanity generally much more interested in how rather than why. Because why can lead you down the paths of speculation and you'll never come back. But if you want to know, how do I make this toaster oven so I can patent it and then make my, my, my millions? That, that is what the pre- preoccupation, so I mean I know in Berkeley when I was, when I was in university, so uh, philosophy was just a department that they had because they had to. But almost nobody was a philosophy major relative to the to the student body. And I know, I know. I already when I was there, I don't know what's going on these days, but in the eighties it was definitely in decline. And of my close friends in Berkeley, I think every last one of my closest friends in Berkeley, all are lawyers. It's all bottom line. Philosophy is a Okay. Go figure. Let's let let's 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 resume our, our discussion. The Greeks were obsessed with contemplating the meaning of life. They'd often spend their days thinking. Uh, Chazal, in general, tried to avoid this black hole of endless speculation. Our emphasis, we learn Talmud, we learn Halacha, we try to figure out what is the Kaddish Baruch's will for us practically right now? How do I lead a good life? What's the Halacha? How do I figure out how to, in, 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 in real time, how do I try to make a difference while I'm walking on this planet? That's more the emphasis of, of the rabbis. So the Greeks and the, and, and, and the rabbis are very much at odds in this way. Greek culture was rich and captivating uh, and new. And for that, all the more captivating, it included institutions like the theater, amphitheaters too were there, but the theater, uh, which was the way that they taught their culture and promulgated. They actually, in certain Greek, in, in certain Greek societies, they paid you to go to the theater because that's where they taught you. That's where they gave over so many of their ideas to the upper class, upper crust of society at least. Bathhouses, the Greek bathhouse. You, you ever been to a Turkish bathhouse before? Really, they call it a Turkish bathhouse, but the concept comes from Greek civilization. If one celebrates the body, certainly cleanliness suddenly has a new primacy in the way we live our lives, and they built a whole system around it, a whole, a whole structure. Um, say it again? No. Jews are clean too, but not to this degree, not to the point of obsessiveness. One can spend days just luxuriating in the various chambers, in the tepidarium, in the caladarium, the various antechambers of the bathhouse that included early concepts like chemical peels, what we would recognize as kinds of plastic surgeries. It's where gossip was traded. Women were usually not welcome. Women were sub substrata citizens. But in the mainstream society, uh, the, 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 the bathing was part of, was part of the, uh, was part of the, it was a fixture society. The um, impressive grand architecture 
took a whole new dimension. Look what human beings are capable of building in their world to upgrade our lives, our pleasure, our physical, our aesthetic appreciation of the world. The human body was celebrated, was elevated to the godly level. Uh, the notion of gymnasium, a Greek word, comes out of this, the buildup of the body, the modern, I mean, you start to think about how much of the modern secular world has its values based on Greek values. It's scary, and, and you start to reconsider Hanukkah, and what is it we're exactly celebrating? Health, by all means, in moderation, to serve higher purposes. I want to stay generally healthy so I have energy to sit in the base measures learning Tyra. But when the health becomes an obsession or becomes the goal in itself, the beauty of the, of the, of the, of the physical body is the point, um, that's Greek. The uh, sports then will, will suddenly become a phenomenon in the world. The really organized sports is, 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 a, is an extension of this obsession with the body. Competitions around this will also come out of this. Intellectual pursuits of all kinds. So um, complex mathematics, uh, geometry, as we know it, for example, the Euclidean geometry comes out of the Greek society. Sensual pleasures without any limitations because there's the gods do everything. So we can certainly indulge our own carnal desires. Uh, that was what we had to be found within the Greek, the Greek um, worldview. If you contrast this, it's not entirely parallel to what we have in the world. And let's think about what goes on. The United States is sometimes considered um, the worst possible cocktail because it's essentially a Greek society with Greek values in all of the areas we just described, sensual pleasures galore, and in, 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 decadent, in decadent parts of the Western world, you can have everything and do everything, and they do. But then the, 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 the odd mix with that is they bring along with it what was originally, this is Thanksgiving, right? So uh, the Puritan consciousness to make sure that they always felt guilty enough to never really enjoy it. So they still maintain the Greek lifestyle. They just felt guilty always afterwards. The Europeans, in contrast, you know, they generally have much more of the Greek thing without the Puritan con con conscience. So they can enjoy it and then forget about it the next day. Uh, they, have a, they have a better time about it. Um, to the Greeks, a nice summary of this, what was beautiful was holy. If it was beautiful, that in itself was the object of holiness. To Jews, what was holy was beautiful. Isn't it? Alexander the Great, Alexander from Macedon, Macedonia, was a short and fierce individual. At the age of 12, he was already a, a feared warrior. He had learned by his own teacher, Aristotle, uh, had, was also very clever and had mastered what they call the seven spheres of wisdom, Greek, Greek style. There's a legend that says, as a ruler once, he came home and he caught his wife riding around horseback style on the back of Aristotle. That's the legend. Can't be proven, but it does illustrate the amorality of their of their situation. Why would why was she riding on horseback? Because when Aristotle tried to cohabit with Arist with Alexander's wife, she said, "Okay, but first get on all fours, and I'm going to humiliate you." And he said, "Okay," and that's where Alexander caught him literally in the in in in, in the in the height of uh, personal humiliation. And again, the idea the Greek wisdom and morality didn't necessarily have a connection that Alexander would catch his own teacher in the act. Um, when he was 19, um, his father became, his father Philip was assassinated, he took the throne, he became the first king of the newly enlarged Greek empire, and he set out to enlarge it further, 
and he went about conquering vast areas of land, Persia, Egypt. In Egypt, he took the ancient city, what was called Rakotis, and he renamed it Alexandria. Alexandria. Famously, and pay attention to that name, we're going to hear a lot about it. The Jews of Alexandria are going to play a major role in history. Uh, he conquers major swaths of Africa, as far east as India. He doesn't quite conquer the entire world. Remember, we saw Hasveros recently doing that, but not Alexander. Um, what he does do is fulfill the vision that Daniel had, that he'll dominate the world, not just by physical conquest, but by spreading Greek ideas wherever he went. Um, so the Greeks represent a new phase of history. They don't want just to rule you and to tax you. They also want your mind and body, and they want to integrate you. And that's the struggle that's going to that's going to commence now. And we're going to uh, we're going to be talking about this in the coming days. Uh, how how insidious this is for Kali Israel. We the Jews generally have done okay when we're exposed to cultures and societies that are deplorable, like Babylonia, like the Babylonian society was a disgusting, bearish, crude society, so we stayed away. The Greeks, though, are seductive, and they offer a certain lifestyle that was sometimes hard to resist. That's gonna be hard for us now, and we're gonna find that the, the Jews collectively don't resist as well as they could have and should have. Yeah, Aaron? Um, Okay, good place, good place to stop. Tomorrow we will continue and talk about the early, uh, the, the, how Alexander comes and conquers the world, and initially how he confronts uh, Kali Israel, and particularly our hero, Shimon Sadiq, and what happens.